What we do in the present depends on what we expect in the future. As someone who has struggled with an attention deficit for my entire life, I know this all too well. I remember once in the fifth grade growing up in Knoxville, Tennessee, we had so many snow days one year that they extended the school day by an hour for the last six weeks of school and the school year by two weeks. It was a prison of torturous boredom, fidgeting, squirming, staring at the big school clock on the wall day after day, counting the minutes between each tick of the second hand, waiting for the final bell to ring and freedom. At that age, I was something of a wrecking ball, a time bomb of suppressed energy and capacity ready to go off. I can only imagine the damage I produced the summer of my fifth grade year after the final bell rang. It may tell you something that in the summer of my sixth grade year, my parents sent me to a foreign country on an exchange program for a month to stay with strangers. I'm not totally convinced it was entirely for my sake and not also for theirs. Fortunately, the U.S. and Sweden are still allies. If expecting something ahead that I had to do but did not want to do, I would become incredibly productive, doing anything and everything other than what was necessary. Much to the perpetual frustration of my parents, I preferred kicking a ball, setting fires, or generally getting in trouble to reading, doing my homework, or getting along with my siblings. When it came to school, I always had plenty of time to study later, right up until the moment of crisis when I was frequently found cramming through tears at the last minute. When the grades came in, I always had plenty of excuses like, the teacher was terrible and unjust, the assignment was confusing, or something had happened to make it impossible to prepare. For parents out there trying to raise a difficult child, take heart. They may one day become a minister or a banker or an artist. In contrast, if what I expected was something that I was excited about, I was capable of intense focus. If my dad said, let's go fishing on Saturday, I would spend days pulling everything together, sorting all of my gear. Friday night, I would literally sleep in my clothes and be sitting on the edge of the bed, fishing rod in one hand and tackle box in the other, ready to go at 4 a.m., even though the planned departure was at 6. The point I'm trying to make is that what we do, how we act, our urgency, readiness, preparation, our actions have everything to do with what we expect in the future. What is true of life is also true of faith. As Christians and as a church, what we do in the present has everything to do with future expectations. In Christianity, the study of what is coming is called eschatology from the word in Greek eschatos, meaning last or furthest. It is the study of the second coming of Christ, the ultimate destiny of humanity, when Jesus will come again at the last day. Today, nearly 2,000 years later, what we do still depends on what we expect in the future. Here in Matthew 25, we're approaching the final weeks of Jesus' life. Behind are his miracles, teachings, 
and the clear direct declaration that he is the Messiah who has come to redeem and restore Israel. Ahead are the Last Supper, the Garden of Gethsemane, Judas's betrayal, the trial before Caiaphas, Peter's denial, a crown of thorns, the whip, and the cross. For a while in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus has been preparing his disciples for the future. Not just the cross, but what will come after. Jesus told them that he will be put to death and rise again. But the disciples cling to a false hope that he will soon assert his power and ascend, not to a heavenly throne, but to a more earthly one, like the one Satan offered Jesus in the wilderness, one of worldly power and worldly glory, glory without the cross. The problem is the disciples have a heart problem. To turn their hearts away from a worldly hope, Jesus tells them a few parables. Last week's lesson from Matthew is the parable of the ten virgins in which Jesus makes clear that those who are welcomed to the wedding banquet are the ones who keep watch and are ready when the master returns. This week is the parable of the talents which Jesus tells to further instill in the disciples an eschatological expectation, an urgency about his return that will sustain them through difficult times while they wait. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Based on what Jesus had been telling them, the disciples would likely have understood the parable as applying to Jesus and to them. The one who is going away is Jesus, and they are the servants to whom he entrusts his property. They would have listened intently, trying to understand how to f- they fit into the parable. They also would have known Jesus' heart-turning purpose in teaching in parables. It bears rem- remembering why Jesus taught in parables. Earlier in Matthew 13, the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. If the evidence of hearing and understanding is turning, we should not be surprised if parables make us uncomfortable. If we hear them correctly, that is what they do. They present us with a choice between the way things can be and the way that they are, and make us choose. The choosing requires a turning in the heart that produces faith. If turning and faith are not produced, as Jesus says in Matthew thirteen twelve, even what we have will be taken away. 
of note in the first two verses of the parable, the man calls his servants. They don't come naturally of their own accord. They're called. And they're servants. They're under an obligation to work. He entrusts them with his property. It's not a gift. It's an instrument of his trust. Receiving the man's property is a contract. There is an agreement or a covenant established. He entrusts each of them with property of a shockingly extraordinary value. Doing a little research, I found that a talent is a measure of gold, equal to 6,000 minas. In the Roman army, which was a fairly well-paid group by comparison to most, one mina was equal to a day's pay. 6,000 days of pay is almost 20 years, excluding Sundays as a day of rest. By any measure, what the man entrusts to his servants is a shockingly large amount, even for the servant who received only one talent. The man's trust is extravagant. Finally, he gives each servant a different amount according to his ability Given the amount, the master must have considered these servants to be extraordinarily capable and trustworthy. Even the one who got the least was trusted with an extraordinary amount. As I thought about these verses and how God gives each of us according to our ability, I could not help but think about Ephesians 2.10. You are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. No verse in Scripture meant more to me when I came to faith in college than this verse. I grew up in the church. My family was very involved. My dad was always on the vestry, often senior warden. I was in the choir and acolyte and crucifer, often pressed into service in place of no-shows. But for me, church was like school, more to be endured than enjoyed. The liturgy was nothing but hollow words, and the lifeless preaching no more than the cause of lunchtime argument and disagreement after church. Like many, I all but left church in college not over theological or philosophical issues, but mere indifference. Thankfully, a rough patch during my sophomore year created the necessity that opened the door to the Holy Spirit. I understood for the first time in Ephesians 2.10 that God had created me for a purpose. He created me in Christ Jesus for good works, His works, works much greater than I was capable of or had even imagined, custom-made for me and for which he was ready, willing, and able to give me everything necessary to accomplish. I don't know what being a Christian has been like for you, but I hope that if coming to faith was long ago, you can still recall what it was like when you first discovered that in giving you faith in his Son, God put into your heart something of incalculable worth to invest in a work that has been created only for you that far exceeds anything you could have ever dreamed of or imagined. Out of this sense of extraordinary provision that God has given us in Jesus, a question should emerge. What will the servants do while waiting for the master to return? What should we be doing while we make wait for Jesus to return? In response, Jesus provides three alternatives or choices for us. 
He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Many, I believe wrongly, in reading parables draw from them exhortations to go and do. Be like the good Samaritan. Be like the good soil. Be like the wheat and not like the weeds. Be like the five virgins who were ready. But as Jesus explained in Matthew 13, parables are not aimed at our efforts, but at our hearts. They're not intended to squeeze more effort out of us, but as an instrument of God's grace calling us to repentance and faith. They're effective because they present us with options. Jesus lets us choose between the kind of servant we are and the kind of servant he wants us to be, that we want to be. The choice is between something extraordinary and what is likely. Looking at this parable, two acted with urgency, going at once and putting the master's property to work. In two cases, the servants invested the master's property and doubled the investment, turning the extraordinary into the unimaginable. In the third case, the unfaithful servant was unfaithful to his obligation. He accepted the master's trust, but took no action and added nothing to the master's property. The stage now set for the master's return. We, like the disciples, wonder what will happen to the unfaithful servant when the master returns. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he had received, and he who had received five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. In the parable, the master's return is after a long time. Subtly, Jesus reasserts that what he has been teaching the disciples, the day of the Lord will happen on a day that we do not expect. In Matthew 24, 3 On the Mount of Olives, looking down across the valley toward the gates of Jerusalem, anticipating the triumphal entry, the disciples come to Jesus privately wondering when this will happen and ask, what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? Jesus' response, and I'm paraphrasing, is in essence, you will have to wait. There is work to be done. The gospel will be preached throughout the whole world things will get much, much worse. Do not be led astray by false expectations, not by war or rumors of war, persecution, false Christs, false prophets performing great signs and wonders. Hatred, lawlessness, those who abandon their faith, or tribulation that will come upon you. My return will come like a flash on a day that no one expects. Keep watch and be ready. 
The first two servants enthusiastically come forward, returning double what the master had entrusted to them. In response, the master describes them as good and faithful. There's no account of what they did other than to trade or invest. All of the profit gained by the master's wealth was for the benefit of the master. They held nothing back. There's no comment that they added anything for themselves. The master rewards them with three things. Praise. Well done, good and faithful servant. More work. You have been faithful with little. I will put you over much. And joy. Enter into the joy of your master. What in the world could be of greater value than to hear the father say, Well done, good and faithful servant. The work you have done so far, you haven't seen anything yet. I have more for you to do. Enter into the joy of the Lord. It's like this. Imagine if we could get everyone in Charlotte, regardless of race, creed, color, national origin, sexual preference, who don't know Christ and are desperately alone, broken, sick, poor, or hopeless, to come to King of Kings. There's not a stadium in Charlotte that could hold them. That is the picture of a two-talent or a five-talent return on investment. Do we live life with an eager, urgent, irrepressible, eschatological hope invested in a plan and purpose that is fully dependent on faith, even in these times of great unrest, uncertainty, and tribulation? Are we up before dawn, dressed and ready, tackle box in one hand, fishing rod in the other? Have we accepted it, accepted this most extraordinary powerful, transforming gift, faith in Jesus Christ, and invested it in what God can do? Are we going at once and investing in gospel work that still remains for the sake of those who are desperately waiting for salvation? Are we asking God to give us what we need? This is the kind of servant we should want to be. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. I knew you were a hard man, the third servant, accepted the master's trust, and took possession of the master's property. A covenant was in place, a legal obligation. The servant broke the covenant. Instead of return, he blamed the master who trusted him, accused the master of being unjust, and hid behind the timid excuse of fear. What I fear is that our lives resonate more with the wicked and slothful servant. We're timid and fearful. I'm not sure that my eschatological hope is more than a smoldering theological idea with little bearing on how I live while I busy myself playing around, starting little fires, and blaming the teacher for unjust and unclear assignments. What about you? Are you taking action, making ready for Christ's return? Are we pursuing only what 
we can achieve without God's help and blaming him for the lack of results. If we're honest with ourselves, this is more often the kind of servants that we are. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There are two kinds of people in the church. Those who believe God wants more from them, and those who want more from him. Unfortunately, we prefer a God who owes us to a God who loves us. It's in the nature of the human heart. In spite of evidence to the contrary, we slip back into wanting to justify ourselves in what we do for God and our neighbor. We want to please God by what we are doing for him while missing out on the joy, the joy of what he is doing in and through us. In the end, we have nothing to offer God but the dirty talents that we have buried in fear. In verse 29, Jesus makes the simple story about a master and servants and financial obligations a matter of life and death for the disciples and for us and for the whole world. Jesus offers us the choice between who we are and who we want to be, between a life of urgent hope and half-hearted despair. If we're honest about the hearts that are within us, we're covenant breakers, we're talent barriers, We're blamers and excuse makers. If that is what you conclude in listening to this parable, Jesus has you right where he wants you, and you are right where you need to be. Because here is where Jesus extends to us, not condemnation, but grace. Alluding back to Jesus' explanation of why he teaches in parables in Matthew 13, the purpose of the parable is not to increase our production, but to produce in us faith. For those who hear, there is a turning. That's how faith works. God does not want our help. He achieves his purpose in the parable by not giving us more to do, but by revealing our need, a need that only he can meet out of the abundance of his generosity. He wants us to need him, to rely on him and his purposes, not on our own. We gather together every Sunday to worship, to remember who God is and what he has done, and to remember who we are and what we have done, and to turn again and again and have our faith restored and reset so that we might gain more faith, more mercy, more grace, more peace, more Christ. I've said it before, faith grows where faith is required. There is no faith where there is no necessity. Faith will multiply in our hearts and in the hearts of those to whom we are called, but only if we invest what little faith we have so that more faith can be added. 
As our faith grows, so does our necessity. As our necessity grows, so does our faith. Faith that is not invested will stagnate, shrink, and die. Even what we have will be taken away. Today we stand with the disciples on the other side of the ascension in a long, uncomfortable period of waiting for the Lord's return. Looking outward, perhaps you are wondering how to live in times of worry about public health, racial strife, social injustice, cultural, political, economic division, and uncertainty. Looking inward, perhaps you are wondering how to live through a deep personal loss, sickness, a broken relationship, loneliness, addiction, or personal failure. Our needs are far greater than the resources we bring in our own strength. How will we live while we wait? We all come from different places and circumstances. Regardless, how we live has everything to do with what we expect in the future and how we invest our faith in the present. Are you eager and hopeful for his return and are you being led or are you being led astray by worldly circumstances? This morning, Jesus is inviting you to turn to him with your necessity. Turn to him with the time that he has given you, the resources that he has given you, the family he has given you, the church he has given you, and reclaim the eschatological hope just as you reclaim your need of him. Let him transform you from the servant you are to the servant he has created you to be in Christ Jesus. He has called you for a purpose, and he is ready and willing and able to give you faith layer upon layer as you invest in his purpose for your life. He has given you faith so that he might produce an amazing work in and through you at home, at work, in Charlotte, Imagine the joy of being found and finding yourself fully invested in the work for which you were created when he comes. Shake off the fear, timidity, and blame. Bring to him your necessity and he will give you faith to accomplish the purpose for which you were created. He is coming back. There is no time to wait.